This is The Global Gambit. In The Global Gambit podcast, we focus on the big picture of geopolitics, foreign policy and current affairs. Each episode, your host, Piotr Curzon, brings you interviews and panels with top-tier academics, journalists and policymakers. Seeking to make sense of the news, go beyond what's presented to us and question and critically analyse these matters. This is The Global Gambit. Greetings, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Global Gambit. Piotr speaking, as always. But this time around, I'm going to be tag-teaming with uh, my great Twitter Spaces co-host, uh, Michael Bond, to talk about an element of the Ukraine war which has really um, developed quite quickly in, in recent weeks. The Russian military have been increasingly using uh, Iranian drones to try and tip the battlefield, so to speak, or at least slow the, the continued counteroffensives that the Ukrainian military uh, are conducting in Kherson and the northeastern flank. These drones are significant, known as kamikaze. They're used only once uh, and have seen to be making quite a significant impact uh, in civilian areas as well as the battlefield more broadly. And there is the idea of what this means for the Russian relations to Iran, given they are very closely aligned uh, and have been supporting one another for a long, long time. Needless to say, Iran is facing its own internal strife uh, as um, anti-regime revolutionary movement protests continue. Joining me to discuss the drone element of this are a couple of people I have long regard for, one of which I haven't known as much as the other, but John Spencer, who is major of the US Army Retired, but is also the chairman of the Urban War Studies uh, and uh, part of the Madison Policy Forum. He's also an author and someone who I've listened to many times, uh, and I encourage you to check out his book, Connected Soldiers. Joining him is also Samuel Bendet, who is a expert on artificial intelligence, Russian specifically uh, innovation ecosystems and Russian military weapons. And he's a part of uh, CNA and CNAS. Um, very looking forward to, to hearing both of these gentlemen's perspectives. I guess to kick it off, we can come to you, Major Spencer. Could you maybe take us through a little bit, just a very broad picture, if you could give us a context of how has the dynamics on the battlefield in Ukraine changed um, since the drones joined the um, joined the fray, so to speak, I will go to to Sam for perhaps a little bit more of the specific uh, details about the drones and how they work. But if you could just lay out maybe a bit of the sit rep and and, and where they've been making uh, appearances and uh, and sort of vis a vis before and after they they started uh, appearing on the battlefield. Sure, I can give it a try. You know, um, if if you know, and most of the, I'm sure if anybody that follows me knows, I'm a I'm a one-trick pony. I'm an urban warfare guy, but I am a student of warfare. The Sam's a, a, a very longtime friend that I had actually on my podcast, you know, well before this war, discussing Russian technology advancements or developments for urban warfare combat, you know, urban combat specifically, like robotics and remote-controlled tanks and things like that. Yeah. So the interesting. You know, war is a um, combination of a nation's means and its will. And what we've seen since Ukrainian offensive in Kherson and, and Kharkiv, you know, a few, now a few weeks ago, the reporting and now on the battlefield of Russia turning to other countries as it's depleted its military and in some of its technologies, like its advanced 
drones and missiles, but also artillery as the reports came that they were turning to North Korea and to Iran for military supplies, which is, I think, a very, a very indicative sign of Russia's military industrial complex, um, the impact of sanctions on things like missile technology, like microchips and things like that. So, you know, a few weeks ago, the Iranian drones hit hit the battlefield. I am not a drone expert. I know a little about, about the Iranian drones. One is that, you know, through the the advancements in civilian technologies which transferred into military technologies, you know, there is a lowering of the price point of some drones, whether that's commercial off-the-shelf drones that can be weaponized as in you attach something to them and they can which you know we love the I love to see at least um, the Ukrainians that did that early in the war, taking you know, DGIs and other other civilian drones and, and affixing small munitions to them and dropping them on top of Russian vehicles and now trench lines, very accurate, and they've really um, democratized that capability. Now, the Iranian drones that were given to Russia um, are of this vein, a very cheap fairly low sophisticated drone um, doesn't have a camera to adjust doesn't have an ability to adjust itself once it's fired but the problem is that they're very cheap you know twenty thousand dollars is what i've heard as a price point so they're not swarming them on the battlefield because if you're in this space and i know sam sam is as well swarming has a, a a very specific definition you know it's not just a lot of something it's actually a body of technologies that have their own brain. They can talk to each other and, and they, they swarm, but it's become synonymous with just firing a lot of something at, at, at a target. So the Iranian drones are so cheap that they can fire or launch many of them at once. And we've seen they, they were on the battlefield before this most recent uh, act by Russia. Most people believe response to the strategic impact of the strike on the Kerch bridge between Crimea and Russia. You know, some people are trying to say that they couldn't have pulled that off either way. They had on the shelf, um, this, this plan to launch a massive missile and drone strike on against Ukrainian civilians and civilian infrastructure, the cities, they launched it recently after the Kerch bridge, Kerch bridge strike. And included a massive amount of these Iranian drones, which again are, are low sophisticated. But even now, I just saw a report saying eighty six percent of them have been struck. But even if two or three of these get through with a, a very you know, significant yield um, explosion on them, I think it's eighty pounds to plus. It's still a lot of explosive force, and some of them still got through recently against civilian infrastructure like power stations and oil uh, gas um, deposits and things like that. So that's where we're at is that Russia isn't using these Iranian drones for – which I think is significant. I'm, a, I'm an, an old infantry guy. Russia isn't helping their failing military formations at the tactical level. They're now using these tactical Iranian drones to strike – while they can at Ukrainian civilian sites, they're all war crimes, um, to have an impact on Ukrainian city infrastructure and, and you know, reduce the power. You know, thinking again, if the, if 
<clears throat> a nation's ability to fight a war <clears throat> is its means and its will. You know, this false belief that these Iranian drones can impact civilian infrastructure, which will lessen the will of the Ukrainian people, Ukrainian politicians to continue to fight Russia, which is which is just you know a fool's errand, you know, just ridiculous um, strategy because it only emboldens the Ukrainians. Uh, I'm looking forward to, since the Ukrainians are having such great success at knocking these out of the sky to where we get to 90, 100% of these, you know, these low-level drone strikes having an impact on civilians. I mean, that, that's, it's, every, every one of them is a war crime, in my opinion. So, so um, just just on that, uh, yep. Major, I, I want to circle back on that question for later. But if you don't mind, I, I want to come to sure. Sam. I want to break down a little bit before we go into specifics, like whether they, you know, how these uh, deter- affect the war crime angle uh, and some of the broader sort of implications. I just want to sort of break down a little bit what these drones are. Oh, so Sam, I, I'd love to know a little bit more. Could you just take us through the, the the details of these these Iranian drones? How they differ to say the ones that the Turkish have been providing the the Ukrainians, and just how they uh, the broader sort of development of the drone industry in the past few years and their usage on the battlefield. Sure, and uh, uh, really happy to follow up uh, Major Spencer's comments. Uh, so we're dealing really with a very specific class of drones. This is sort of a one-way trip, a kamikaze drone, a loitering munition. These are simple machines that have a, um, <clears throat> a warhead, usually a light warhead. These aren't very large um, UAVs, especially, uh, certainly not the ones that are in the Russian service, not the Iranian ones. And um, some of them have just a GPS system to navigate the target. Some have a very simple camera. But they're essentially launched in large numbers. Uh, Again, not a swarm. They're not communicating with each other. They're just there to overwhelm the defenses, to keep the defenses busy, to create multiple contact points for the different type of air defense capabilities. And usually several of them can sneak past. And in Ukraine, um, Ukrainian defenders have been able to deal with most of these drones. They've been able to shoot shoot down anywhere from two-thirds to a uh, three quarters of these drones. It's the one that makes it through that really causes a lot of damage. And of course, it, it is both a military weapon. It is a weapon of psychological war because it keeps the military and the civilian populations in a constant sense of stress and alert. Um, it's a it's an economic weapon if it's launched against infrastructure, uh, facilities, and uh, different sites. Uh, but it is an expendable weapon. And this type of UAV, by definition, must be expendable. Specifically, Ukrainians earlier identified that these Shahed drones can cost as little as $20,000 each. And they have civilian components, they have civilian microelectronics, they have civilian engines and motors. The Shaheds are not very sophisticated drones. The Shahed 136, Shahed 131 are very loud when they fly. They have a nickname of flying moped or flying lawnmower. They could be heard before they're seen. Uh, And so they could be shut down with any type of uh, air defense system or an effort, anything from very sophisticated missiles to uh, sometimes even small arms. The Russian defense industry has not been able to manufacture its uh, own loading munitions prior to the war in any significant amount. In other words, they had a small number of domestic Lancet and domestic Kub loitering drones. But over the past seven months, there's been a significant um, loss of different types of drones 
by the Russians. They lost a lot of their intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance drones. They've lost some combat drones. They also lost some of their loading munitions. Some of these loading munitions were not very accurate. And so as the Ukrainian military went into counteroffensive, as they became very successful in the Kharkiv region, as they're pressing Russians in the Kherson region, for the Russian military, there is a pressing need to try and stem this advance, to slow it down, to inflict a significant cost on both the military and the civilian populations in Ukraine to slow down Ukrainian progress. And this is where these um, kamikaze drones, these loading munitions really come in. There have been some interesting uh, news uh, about this lately. So during the summer, we were told that Russia may have acquired as many as several hundred of these UAVs, these loitering drones from Iran, which also include combat drones and ISR drones. Uh, Ukrainian government recently announced that Russia is going after a much larger order, somewhere to the tune of uh, 2,000 to 2,400 additional loitering munitions. And just today, Russian um, news uh, sites and uh, Russian telegram channels are reporting that Russian defense industry is actually delivering a large number of Landsat and other loading munitions to the Russian forces. So what the Russian military is doing is it's banking on using a large number of both domestic and imported loading munitions to send these UAVs on basically one-way trip to smash into anything that is remotely identified as Ukrainian military, Ukrainian personnel, Ukrainian air defenses, Ukrainian artillery units, or civilian infrastructure such as electric power plants and, um, and other important sites. So this type of technology can extract a very heavy cost on the defenders if used in large numbers and if uh, used with accuracy. Yeah, thank you very much, gentlemen. Um, with that, I'm going to hand over to my co-host, uh, Michael Bond, to ask a few more sort of technical related questions before we maybe go back to the, the broader implications geopolitically wise. Uh, I'll circle back to you. Um, Patrick, uh, just coming to you, do you have any thoughts on the drones in the sort of the more, have you been following their, how the situation has changed before and after they joined? Uh, as John uh, was setting up quite nicely, you know, a large sort of probably important point was the, uh, the, the strike on the bridge in Crimea. But I was just wondering if you had initial, any, any initial takes before we go into some specifics. Uh, one or two, and, and John and Samuel covered it very well. And as John mentioned, we've seen most of these fall almost exclusively on civilian targets or, or infrastructure. And again, I am also not a drone expert by any by any measure, but there appears to be something uh, in the warheads these are armed with that do not lend themselves well to striking military targets. I think John touched on that. Um, my focus is more on how do you deal with these kind of things, and I remain convinced that specifically gun-armed short-range air defense are going to make a comeback in dealing with uh, these kind of you know, heavy drone attacks or possibly even drone swarms, depending on what, the, what that looks like in future. But traditionally, the, especially the West, the, the Russians do a little bit more than we do, um, have this kind of gun-armed short-range air defense system. Uh, the Shilka, the, the uh, ZSU-23, is, is probably one of the most famous systems. We may see that return in the West just because you need to be able to shoot down a large number of fairly fragile enemy enemy remote platforms in short order. And a missile is simply a very wasteful, high-cost way to do that. And especially with exploding submunitions, I think 
gun arm shore ad is probably the way to go. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Appreciate that. And um, with that, uh, I'm going to be moving over to Michael, my my co-host for this episode, who's helping me run this from Twitter Spaces to ask a few more of the technical questions before we then come back to the bigger sort of geopolitical uh, dynamics. But Michael, over to you. Uh, thanks very much, Peter. Uh, so Sam, I'm wondering, could you lay out for us maybe uh, some of the um, supply chain, as we understand it, how Iran is actually getting these drones uh, to Russia? Uh, because, you know, th- these are large numbers. Are they being sent uh, assembled? Are they being sent, do we believe, by airlift or by cargo ship? Is Iran providing training to Russia, either in Iran or within Russia about how to use these drones? Could you just give us some of those details? That's a great question. Uh, yes, uh, open source analysis over the summer tracked multiple Iranian cargo aircraft flights to Russia via Caspian Sea. And this information was publicly available. I, I think multiple people were tweeting about it. I also tweeted about it. So at least 40 flights by air were conducted between Iran and Russia. And then recently, Russian cargo airliners also were delivering something from Iran to Russia. And so that coincided with the U.S. intelligence analysis that uh, several hundred, at least several hundred drones were delivered uh, to Russia from Iran. Initially, U.S. intelligence estimate also indicated that uh, Russian uh, instructors were undergoing training in Iran on these drones especially on the more sophisticated Mohajer 6 and Shahed-129 and possibly 191 combat and ISR drones. ISR stands for Intelligence, Surveillance, and Reconnaissance. Recently, there's been news that there are Iranian instructors in the Crimea also providing assistance to the Russian military in flying large numbers of Shahed-136 and Shahed-131 loading munitions. This type of cooperation is not surprising. Although Russia has experience flying its own loading munitions like the Kub and the Landsat, those Russian loading munitions don't fly, um, I think, no, they fly at no more than 40 to 50 kilometers. So flying something more sophisticated, possibly to 200 kilometers or even longer, requires possibly a different level of training. And so Iran may have provided that training to Russians inside Iran and now um, in uh, some of the... Um, Russian conquered territories as well. Uh, so d- did you say then that uh, in addition to training, are there indications that Iranian nationals may actually be flying some of these drones during their attack? Well, that's what um, I guess a lot of people are trying to figure out, whether Iranians are in fact flying these drones or whether they're actually there to kind of stand over the um, uh, shoulders of Russian operators and guide them to um, to targets. I also want to add uh, something I didn't say. I was asked how these Iranian Shaheds compare to the ones that uh, Turkey has provided to Ukraine. These are different classes of drones. Turkish Bayraktar TB2 combat and ISAR drone um, is essentially a different uh, class of a UAV. It's got a range of about 200 or so kilometers, but Bayraktar um, carries its own uh, munitions as well as rockets. Shahed-136 and Shahed-131 do not. They are, in fact, uh, flying rockets by themselves. Thanks for clarifying that. I had actually even heard uh, unconfirmed reports it was possible that Iranian trainers may have uh, been casualties in some strikes within Ukraine. Had you heard that as well? 
I have not, but it would not surprise me. I, I do remember seeing something like that in the news. Um, it wouldn't surprise me specifically if uh, Ukrainians went after Ukrainian operators. The most effective way to target this type of technology, and not just UAVs, but also, for example, IEDs, improvised, improvised explosive devices, is to go left of launch. In other words, to go after the network that operates these systems before they're launched and before they are in flight. And so if Ukrainians, in fact, struck a facility where Russian and Iranian operators were training or exchanging information, then that uh, is just as effective in diminishing the, the capacity to fly these loading munitions as shooting them out of the sky while they are in flight. Thanks very much. You had also said that it seems like Russia has approached Iran to obtain these drones because they either can't get the quality of you know, longer range uh, loitering munition that they had wanted, whether it's quality or quantity from their domestic industry. I, I did see that just a few minutes ago, you uh, posted an indication that uh, the Russian military may have taken delivery of up to 1500 of the new uh, model of their Lancet munition. Does that indicate that they are improving their production capacity? Do you know how quickly they're ramping that up? And um, also, could you just compare, explain the difference between the Lancet and, say, the Shahed in terms of, you know, purpose on the battlefield? Well, it's a, it's a definite possibility. Obviously, Russian defense industry has been in very sharp and visceral focus during this war uh, by its inability to provide many of the key technologies and capabilities to the Russian military. And certainly many of the Russian telegram bloggers that have been very active uh, have been screaming from the top of their lungs for more capability like the loading munitions. But the Landsat and the Shahed-136 and 131 are, in fact, in different weight categories as far as their range is concerned. So the Landsat and the Kub do not fly more than 40, 50 kilometers. Shaheds can travel for hundreds of kilometers. Iranians have claimed that these Shahed loading munitions have a range of well over 1,000 kilometers. And so operating Shahed-136 and 131 requires, a, I suppose, a, a bit of a different level of technical sophistication than operating Landsat or Kub loading munitions. Uh, but uh, I'm awaiting on the uh, multiple verifications of these deliveries. Just today, in fact, Russian media announced that uh, Russian forces used up several hundred loading munitions since the start of the war, which if you look at the length of this conflict, that's not really a big number. It's not like they were using hundreds of them a month. So there's a lot of pressure on the Russian defense industry to deliver technologies that Russians knew they needed well before the war. One of the biggest lessons from the Nagorno-Karabakh war that was fought on Russian's doorstep for the Russian military was uh, the ability to use combat UAVs, ISR UAVs, and loading munitions in large numbers. And so the fact that uh, when Russia invaded Ukraine, it had very few of these on hand uh, indicates probably a, a much bigger problem than just... Um, just the defense industry capacity. So if they are, in fact, improving that, it indicates that the defense industry has been sort of put on notice, they're putting resources, and uh, they are trying to deliver technologies that their military has called for um, a long time ago. Uh, and er early on, you did describe to us some of the different types of uh, drones, you know, whether it be recon-based or the loitering munitions. Another function that drones seem to have been relied on heavily is for correction of artillery fire. And I know I've heard quite a bit um, coming out of Russian media 
about you know dec- decrying the fact that they don't have enough drones for that purpose either and that there have been big pushes to source those drones uh, whether it be privately or through crowdfunding i haven't heard anything about uh approaching iran to obtain rotorcraft that the type that are, are needed for artillery correction does iran have much of an industry in those types of drones i think i think there's two ways to answer that so iranian uh, drone industry is rather robust uh, if we look at the numbers and if we look at the variety of drones that the Iranian defense industry has been able to manufacture, they have long-range drones, they have a lot of mid-range to short-range ISR and combat drones, they have multiple types of loitering munitions, uh, they also have very short tactical drones. Uh, Iranian drones have been given to their allies across the Middle East so that the allies like the Houthis in Yemen could go after um, U.S. allies um, in uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE. So some of these drones were used by Iranian proxies with relative success, and those lessons were uh, obviously incorporated into the Iranian defense manufacture. Uh, But at the same time, um, a lot of the artillery correction is usually done by Russia's own Orlan-10 and Eleron-3 ISR drones. Uh, Orlan flies at 120 kilometers. Eleron has a much shorter range. And these are the type of drones, because they were at the tactical edge of this war, have suffered significant losses. So probably the biggest loss in numbers uh, is by the Orlan 10 UAV. Uh, Actually, one of the Russian um, uh, politicians, uh, Dmitry Medvedev, was recently uh, seen attending a factory that manufactures Orlan 10 and Orlan 30 UAVs to kind of remind the people and the military that, yes, the government is on top of it, and they are trying to manufacture these um, at scale. But also a lot of this artillery correction is done by commercial-type quadrocopters. And this is probably one of the biggest successes of this war for both sides. The proliferation of commercial drones like the Chinese-made DJI, multiple DJI uh, models, for for both sides has enabled a significant rise in, in sensor points. Basically, these drones acting as ISR elements, as combat elements, and artillery and target acquisition. So some of that artillery correction is done by the commercial UAVs, which are still rather plentiful, despite DJI's public announcement that they are stopping the sale of these uh, drones in uh, Russia and Ukraine. It isn't probably possible to fully stem the delivery of so many of these drones to the Russians and the Ukrainians, considering how many are sold globally, and the fact that DJI has an absolute stranglehold on that market. Uh, So Iran does have smaller drones, and uh, if Russia feels that it needs certain additional capacity um, from a com- from a country that manufactures military-grade drones, it's probably going to go for that. Because commercial drones, while successful, aren't necessarily proofed against some of the capabilities like electronic warfare and other aspects of this war. Thanks a lot for that, Sam. And, uh, and Michael, for your, your string of questions, we'll circle back to you. Uh, in a bit. But um, I want to bring in um, Major Spencer and and, and Patrick uh, to talk about um, sort of, I just wanted to hear your guys' takes and Sam, please do chime in uh, if you if you feel you, you want to. But I want to talk a little bit more about the doctrine of sort of military just warfare itself, right? 
Major Spencer, you're, you're, you're an expert on urban warfare specifically, as you mentioned. And uh, from what I understand, you know, conducting urban offensives are some of the most notoriously difficult and risky of any form of uh, military strategy. You know, there's not really a sort of a clear doctrine about it. It's not meant to be descriptive, as I remember the Modern War Institute, I think, in one article saying there's, a, there's an operation specific doctrine, for example, to conduct counterinsurgency or coin operations, which really developed a lot over the 2000s. Um, but I was just curious to hear from yourself, maybe if we start with you, uh, Major Spencer, about, um, you know, what what do you think these drones mean for sort of a shift in, in the way that urban warfare is being conducted? I understand you're not an expert on the, on the drones themselves, but sort of in the bigger fray of their their role in 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 application in different areas because we've seen as as sam has outlined for us you know their usage in a few different uh places i was just wondering if you could uh share some of your thoughts on that if you had any sure um absolutely that all drones are not created the same and all urban battles are not the same and that's one of the reasons why i wanted to visit nagarno-karabakh and i went last year now um, and walked the ground to see the role of um, the loitering munitions, loitering drones. Um, a lot of the reporting was that it was a, you know, a revolution in military affairs, the future of warfare, drone warfare. And my opinion, just as a student of warfare and a student of urban warfare, which in that war, the urban battle over the, the city of Susha was the battle that ended the war. Um, and had a strategic effect, that drones play an enabling function to warfare, the actual fighting. Um, Some drones can have a very significant tactical impact, like the TB2 Barakhtar drones and the the Israeli Harats did in both Nagorno-Karabakh and in the opening phases of the Ukraine war. Some of those, you know, hardened longer loitering bigger yield drones had a significant impact um, in the opening phases of this war but war also there's a kind of action counter reaction to to any capability in war i personally do not believe that a drone the advancements in drones is an evolution you know a revolution in military affairs i don't think it's a, a even a significant trend I mean, it is a it is a evolution of air power. Um, it is a democratization of capabilities, cheaper, um, you know, air forces. But like Patrick was saying, there's a there's a pretty simple counter to many of these drones, and some of that's old school technologies that have to be brought back, or old school weapon systems and and tactics specifically. Um, in urban battles, again, they're used in um, here's my here's my uh, really my bottom line is that your drones are can be significant and, and they and both sides will use them to their advantage. But um, fires are the use of firepower in the support of a moving formation. In urban battles, as much as an open field battle, you you still have to close with destroy your enemy and take what he values in that in in urban terrain that's that's the key terrain in urban areas where the drones can be used for again any supporting function from intelligence gathering to actually striking and 
um, providing fires for moving forces. And, but this is what we're seeing, right? These drones, the, the latest the, the Iranian drones, are easily combated. Um, they're not as significant as a – and I think I, I would love to hear even Sam's opinion on how the – the more sophisticated versions of Russian drones, like the Orlans, were were starting to be brought down more and more in in multiple fronts in the Ukraine war. And um, as those got even those got treated, these are a lesser form of that. But as we move forward, um, militaries and land forces still have to move forward and take ground and then hold ground. Drones are just an enabling function of the overall mission. These versions, I think um, we won't be talking about the Iranian drones much longer as uh, both in electronic and direct fire countermeasures to these is, is pretty simple. They just have to get the systems in place. You're never going to be able to get them all because you're talking about huge swaths of land. Um, what we haven't seen, like we were talking about at the beginning, is the use of these drones in support of a major maneuver action, right? So you'll use them in supporting functions as much as possible. I think these are not going to be as helpful to Russian military objectives in Ukraine as they may hope they would be. And it's, it's of a lesser importance to me than the, the ground maneuvers that we're seeing supported by heavy fires, um, longer reaching artillery and rocket systems than these. And these are almost a terror tactic with very little, military value thank you very much and i think what's um your point about you know haven't seen them used in like a a quite significant movement i mean it makes me think a little bit it's not exactly the same comparison but drones have been very consequential in the ethiopian civil war which continues uh to this day almost two years at this point and the big difference is that the tplf which is the the rebel movement on one side representing sort of parts of the tigrayan um uh community don't have any aerial capabilities versus the federal government the abiy ahmed federal government um of ethiopia who have been buying as i say turkish drones I think they've got some from UAE and even China, um, and they have played quite a sizable role in, in shifting the the dynamics on the battlefield. Um, so, I, I, and that for me, it's it, the, the, there's not enough, I think, evidence or research being looked at into the Ethiopian consequence, or should we say, uh, countries that are in the global south that are fighting and maybe buying these cheaper versions of drones to try and influence the the battlefield. So, I, I think that that would be an interesting conversation in the future. But Sam. We'd love to come to your thoughts on that um, as well, and maybe we can jump over to Patrick if he has anything. Yeah, I agree with uh, Major Spencer. Drones do not win wars by themselves. The, the ground forces do. They have to hold and take territory. Uh, but drones are significant enablers. And so in the Nagorno-Karabakh war, we witnessed how Azerbaijani drones have been able to cause significant amount of damage and attrition amongst the Nagorno-Karabakh and Armenian forces, depriving them of air defenses, depriving them of... Uh, the capacity to use their armored vehicles, artillery systems, and and many others. Uh, and so if uh, Russia can use, let's say, hundreds of landsets against Ukrainian forces, it would be able to either cause a significant amount of damage amongst the Ukrainian troops, uh, amongst Ukrainian uh, military systems to slow down their advance, to slow down and degrade some of their operations, or if they're able to use these um, at scale to strike at the civilian targets to cause significant harm to the Ukrainian population, this would uh, presumably buy Russians time to reorganize 
and to launch either counteroffensive or or to do something else. I, I do want to say also that uh, Russians used drones in Syria extensively, even claiming that they operated dozens of them over the Syrian airspace at any given time around the clock for the first time in Russia's modern history after 1992. But we all, myself included, may have drawn uh, the wrong lessons from Syria insofar as the anti-Assad coalition that was fighting Russians didn't have sophisticated air defense technologies, didn't have sophisticated electronic warfare capabilities or early warning radars to counter these relatively simple Russian drones. And so perhaps Russians went into the war in Ukraine early on with their small batch of ISR drones thinking would represent uh, a a less of a challenge or it would uh, basically represent as limited of a challenge to the Russians as the anti-Assad Syrian forces were. But uh, again, circling back to what actually wins wars, it's the infantry, the ground forces, the uh, the airborne forces, the ones that hold and take the territory. And this is what we're seeing in Ukraine, because in Ukraine, it's uh, the conflict of uh, who holds the territory, who holds the um, the cities and uh, and other important ground based assets. Thank you very much for that, Sam. Uh, Patrick, do you have anything you'd like to add to what the other two have said? Well, I think they've covered it very well. Um, Drones are fundamentally a force multiplier, whether this is ISR drones functioning in a recon or a scout or even an artillery spotting role or uh, more tactical drones providing air support, devolving these kind of miniaturized air assets to what are essentially basically ground formations at you know almost all levels, anything from a squad or platoon up, up to you know companies or battalions. It has tremendous utility. And while I am not someone that thinks drones are going to replace manned aircraft anytime soon for a variety of reasons, um, as John and Samuel both covered, they have a great um, uh, ability to amplify the ability of ground units to operate in their environment and do damage outside, you know, outside this levels of damage compared to, you know, what you might normally expect out of them. Knowing where your enemy is going to be, is critical for, say, an artillery unit. I mean, the Ukrainians have proved this time and time again. Finding the enemy so you can fix them and destroy them is critical. And drones have been amazing in assisting, especially the Ukrainian artillery units, in doing this. And, you know, as John was referencing earlier, just being able to f- miniaturize recon drones in an urban environment, and I'll let him speak to this because he's the expert, would seem to me to be, you know, of vast importance. They, 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 the utility they provide, I think, is going to be with us for the foreseeable future. And, and you know, that's that. I can't add much more. Those guys did a great job covering it. <laughs> I appreciate it, Patrick. It's great to have you all the same. John, you want to come back in on that? Yeah, I, mean, I 100% agree um, with the Patrick's last comment that any in the urban train, any ability. So one of the of the of the many challenges of fighting an urban train is. It is uh, the ability to identify where the enemy is, where the threats are, where the you know, any all the aspects of intelligence to support maneuvering forces. I can't see through concrete. I can't even see around the building. So, absolutely drones. And if I can strike somebody in that train, um, that that would be a great value. So interesting about the you know, the camp of drone warfare versus you. Know, Really, somebody saying that it's an enabling function. Absolutely, it's a it's a force multiplier as much as the balloon was 
during the Boer War. And balloons are actually still important in today's wars. Um, but what I what I got from um, the the second battle, the second Nagorno Karabakh War was that if you're a modern military and you don't have an air defense suite of systems, um, you know, most militaries hadn't haven't had to look up since the Korean War, if not World War II. And now, um, you know, the same thing with a tank in urban terrain. If you don't have an active protection system, it's vulnerable. If you're if you don't have air defense systems all the way down to that squad level, then yes, absolutely, you're going to be vulnerable now that these are cheaper. Um, you can attach munitions to a lot more things. Um, but what, again, why I think that the Iranian drone um, is a feeble attempt by Russia is that that drone specifically isn't the Lord, which I would like to ask Sam to, why is it called a loitering munition? Since it's really just sent on one vector a GPS, it can't change course and then it strikes it. So it, it can be intercepted anywhere along that path. It doesn't have the ability to stay above a target for hours and be a hunter killer type of system. So my main point is that what drones teach me is that militaries, like we've seen in Ukraine, Russia is still behind the power curve. The Ukrainian military is teaching everybody that war is not, you know, a single arms fight. It's not, you know, an an arm, a tank fight. It's not an infantry fight. It's not an artillery fight. It's a combined arms fight. And and the military that can put all that together most effectively is going to have the greatest combat effectiveness, which now we understand includes air defense systems, which even the U.S. military, like Patrick was saying, SHORAD and other capabilities has fallen folly to a belief on what the future of warfare will be and has reduced some capabilities, which now have to be brought back as you, you, the air is going to be contested from you know, low level to high level capabilities. Thanks. Uh, thank you, Major Spencer. Um, no, I think it was what the Prussian theorist Clausewitz who said in the whole range of human activities, war most closely resembles a game of cards. But um, I think modern urban warfare, particularly, uh, and with these use of drones, uh, as I was reading an article in preparation for this on the Modern War Institute, they called it sort of it more resembles a mixed martial arts fight uh, than hey, a game of cards that, or something like that. Yeah, so, that's my that's my that's my that's actually my spin on Clausewitz. Yeah, the MMA fight. Oh, he also said it's like a wrestling match. You have to interact with your enemy. You have to engage in your enemy to discover what needs to be done. Uh, I think that's an important aspect. That I think Clausewitz got two of the wrestling matches. One of the issues with the cards and um, chess and, and MMA is that there is a set of rules in place. So it's it's you 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 have to, and I think this is the beauty of the Ukrainian military as well, and their tactical innovations is that you have to understand what's in the box to think outside of the box, and that includes for me even what to do with drones in their function, um, in in conjunction with a maneuvering element. I mean, I think that's one of the things I took from the most recent offensive in um, the Kharkiv area was their combination of capabilities from, you know, from Humvees to pickup trucks to tanks and um, the the drones and their reconnaissance. And uh, I'm sure drones and strike. That's the, the true art of warfare. Thank you very much, uh, um, Major Spencer. So. Back to you, Major Spencer, um, but I, uh, Sam and, and Patrick, I'd, I'd like both your takes as well. You mentioned uh, at the beginning of the conversation war crimes. 
And this is something that I want to I want to dive into a little bit more with you, which is, you know, drones, UAVs are still relative to in the broader scheme of military stratagem and tactics um, quite new. Um, and the one thing we haven't seen of much use in this war is the Russian avi- uh, um, aerial forces. So what, what, what do you take from that, uh, Major Spencer, in the sense of how do we treat these drones in the form of, I mean, it's quite obvious if they target, they, they strike a civilian target, that's, that's a war crime. But how do you go about dealing with that? How do you respond to that? How do you think it should be responded? And uh, yeah, you know, just love to hear your thoughts a bit more on the international humanitarian law front. Sure. So I'm not... Uh, you know, I'm a, a, I dabble in a little bit, but I'm by far an IHL, a LOAC um, expert. I have spent, I've been to a lot of conferences and spoken at a lot of you know, United Nations, NATO events, NATO Vienna, about combat in densely populated areas, the, all the laws of war and customary laws implies. Um, with each drone strike, that can be analyzed by different organizations which make that determination where against the just the basics of the law of armed conflict military necessity proportionality um, the right to care that each one of these drones i personally believe um, that each drone strike joins the list of now by i think many organizations is, is in the thousands of documented war crimes and there's just they just get added to the list of meets every criteria of a war crime in the distinction uh, of a military target, uh, military necessity, portionality. Uh, these drone, you know, when they Russia's most recent strike against almost every major city in Ukraine, I don't see how any military could say, okay, this was against a military capacity, whether that was um, supporting the military command and controlling the military, there were straight civilian targets of arguably no military necessity. Um, in, in the achievement of Russia's military objectives, they, it was literally terrorism. So I think my definition, you know, again, I'm not that, that's not the world I work in. I have, have spent enough time, and I disagree, of course, with Amnesty International's deter- in recent interpretation of um, military uh, law of armed conflict and the presence of military formations in urban areas. But these are legitimate war crimes of striking at civilian targets to terrorize civilians you know, and stated rules of hitting infrastructure just to, to impact the Ukrainian civilians. The, the, <laughs> I don't know how much more to say. Uh, um, Jennifer, I see there, many other people I think could make a comment on just by the laws, alone the intent that every one of those drone strikes are going to join this thousands of documented war crimes that Russia has committed in Ukraine. And I, I, I strongly believe that a lot more should be done to Russia and now to the Iranian regime who is providing these tools and these tools are being used as war crimes that that should trigger sanctions in whether that's under the state-sponsored terrorism clauses or you know, there there are you know, beyond my again my scope of research they 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 should trigger in my opinion now more sanctions because of the way that the resources being used 
illegally in Ukraine. Thanks for that, John. I appreciate that. Um, Patrick, Sam, do you have anything you'd like to add on that front? Maybe, Sam, if we come to you first. Yeah, I would say I I agree with John. Um, This war is shifting to targeting civilian populations. It is becoming a psychological war against the civilians, an economic uh, war against the civilians. And this, of course, takes this war to a very different level in the international community. So as this continues, as Russia attempts to strike more of the Ukrainian infrastructure targets and uh, have a greater impact on the civilian population, again, this becomes a very, very different, more dangerous conflict. It doesn't appear, at least for now, that the Russian military or government is going to back away from these uh, policies. And the question is, what can make them back away from that? Thank you, Samuel. Patrick, anything to add? Yeah, I, I take a slightly different take on this. Um, I, I think the West has gotten used to these kind of low intensity conflicts where we can punch down on what are essentially third rate militaries. And it, it's led us to this view that only military targets are acceptable when in reality, the last time the West fought a large scale conventional war against against peer opponents, we were firebombing cities. I mean, this is not new. Uh, now, that the 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 morality of that has certainly been debated to this day, and rightly so. And Russia has specifically targeted targeted especially civilian apartment complexes and such. Uh, but infrastructure, in my mind, is is it's certainly ugly. It's more of a gray area. Is it a war crime? You could probably make that argument. I guess where I come down on this is Russia has never given up its personnel for adjudication by a third party war crimes tribunal ever. And that's in virtually any conflict they've fought in in modern history. I don't expect that to change at best if Russia loses this war. And I'm talking loses in a serious way, meaning its army is savage and it's forced to withdraw from Ukraine completely as part of some peace settlement You and, and in exchange for reduction of sanctions. You might see some low-level uh, officers and enlisted given up to a war crimes tribunal as a as a sop to the West. I don't expect anybody of significant rank to pay for what they've done. So I think it does come back to how do you intend to penalize Russia for that? And what leverage can you exert externally on the Russian state for essentially sponsoring this? We can quibble on on the degree of what is and isn't, but they certainly have committed over war crimes. That's not in doubt. And they seem this this seems almost a, a matter of state policy. So with that, what do you do? Is it, is it sanctions? Is it uh, secondary sanctions on third party nations like Iran and possibly North Korea, possibly China, who are enabling and either through, through weapons deliveries or through buying their oil? Those are actually big questions, especially when you get to a nation like China. Does the West want to risk sanctioning China and Russia at the same time in the midst of an economic downturn? I mean, that that is an I'm not proposing an answer, but that's an open question that I think should be debated seriously in various capitals in in both Europe and the United States and North America, because whatever weapons they are providing, the Chinese are certainly buying oil, which is enabling Russia to continue this war. And China supplies most of the developed world with a large percentage of its manufactured goods. So exactly how serious do we take this? And I think that really is an open question. I'm sorry to say. I think it's an interesting point that, you know, and, and uh, Major Spence, I'll come to you. 
in a second. I, you know, it, it, someone just pointed out in the, uh, if you're listening to this on Twitter Spaces on the podcast, join us next time on Twitter Spaces. But um, someone pointed out that could this set a precedent for, you know, if you're following this sort of string of perpetrators or those involved in it, you know, could you say the same for what's happening with Yemen, Saudi Arabia and the arms being supplied by the West? to the Saudis and sort of the the ultimate responsibility. It's a good point. You know, how far along the line do you go uh, if the Iranians are supporting that and then that funding is coming from the China? It's a, it's a good point. But Major Spencer, you, you want to push back on that or you have a different take? Yeah, just a little bit. I mean, I, I agreed with most of the end of it. I, mean, I would just put a yes in on applying what about of pre or post-World War II conventions and Geneva Conventions and customary law, and you can't take something from pre-war to, or even though there was a law of armed conflict, there was a law of war during, you know, that's old as World War One, World War Two, and nations have, have broken that in the past, but as a global community after World War Two and, and the evolution of the law of armed conflict, there has, there have been new ways of doing it. You also can't, you know, it's hard to take intra-war conflicts and proxy war aspects and then apply those. This is, this is by definitions, a, a, a category of war where the most laws of armed conflicts imply a nation state invaded another nation state and is in direct hostilities against the other. That's why organizations like the United Nations were created and I think there should be a lot more done to uphold the laws of war in this situation. And this is this is a a a, a blip in the evolution of the law of armed conflict because Russia has really used war crimes as a method of warfare. And lots of people are saying that there's nothing that can be done. There's there's absolutely things that can be done. Even the UN General Assembly vote that. Russia's claims to territorial is illegal in conjunction with the UN Charter is a step in that direction. So I, I personally would never compare, you know, the bombing of Dresden or you know things like that against modern definitions of what is a war crime and what is not, because the law, the the very big category of law of armed conflict is an evolving body of laws that all nations have agreed to, to include Russia. Uh, thank you very much, Major Spencer. And now we come to the exciting bit of uh, recording a live podcast in that I'm able to introduce a couple of other people I'd love to get some takes on and maybe pose a question, particularly to Sam, before he has to go, unfortunately, a little bit early, earlier. Khalil Dewan, who's a PhD candidate in the UK, focusing on Ukraine uh, drone warfare, but also got a LLM in international law focusing on US drone policy. So, uh, and we're also joined by Paul Adams, who's a BBC diplomatic correspondent, having experience in both Washington, the Middle East and the Balkans. So welcome, guys. Uh, great to have you. Khalil, uh, I'd love to come to you first, uh, given I, I saw you wanted to engage, get, get on in this discussion. Uh, and if you had anything you wanted to ask Sam uh, specifically, and then we can continue from there. Yeah, sure. Thank you very much. A really interesting discussion and very timely, of course. I just wanted to weigh in on the law, um, in particular with regards to uh, Ukraine. And it's really interesting. Some really interesting comments have been made. Uh, In my opinion, I believe that, you know, the law of armed conflict, international human rights law, they've both been blurred. And, um, you know, 
the law is what it is. Um, it's, it's very old. The Geneva Convention is very old. The law of targeting is very old. But what's new is the interpretation of the use of drones within peace zones or whether we want to call it armed conflict zones. And sometimes there's a blur depending on the interpretation of the state. 20 year discussion has been going on um, from the US side and then briefly in the UK. I don't really believe that Iraq, that um, Russia is particularly concerned about its interpretation and how it is going about targeting. If we look at its strikes um, in the last couple of weeks, we've seen civilian infrastructures being um, targeted um, critical infrastructure being targeted and they're also reciprocating uh, allegedly as well based on some of their conversations they've had in, in the open. And, you know, when, you, when we discuss the law, we also discuss, like, for instance, the interpretation of, you know, what does Russia deem as directly participating in hostilities? Because now we have um, a lot of uh, civilians who are also arming themselves. They're also... Uh, fighting on behalf of the uh, Ukraine state, but also they may not necessarily be wearing a uniform. So from from Russia's point of view, they may deem the whole population as uh, a potential uh, directly participating hostilities individual or even a continuous combat function, which can be highly problematic. And we've seen some of that play out in some of the conflicts recently that the Americans were involved in, particularly in, in Afghanistan and more clear cases, I would, I would suggest in in Somalia, um, with some, you know, atrocious targeting policies. And uh, yeah, this is one of the things that I wanted to uh, point out. But the last thing I wanted to mention is that um, I've noticed in the last couple of days, there's been a lot of talk about sanctions, um, and rightly so, and perhaps not rightly so, depending on how we think about things um, in terms of the global order. And uh, to be honest with you, we can also, of course, along the lines of Clausewitz, um, adapt that and say sanctions, um, you know, is uh, warfare by other means. And when we think about the law, law is, of course, politics as well. And so is the law of war. It can become lawfare. You can justify technically uh, any military target you want. With regards to some of the actors that are, that are, actually, that are actually involved in Ukraine, there are several different bystanders who are encouraging or financing from um, from afar, uh, and they're and they're almost acting like surrogates. And ultimately, in this discussion, when we talk about drone warfare, we need to talk about networked warfare, which is far more important than um, the drone. The drone is just a symbol, and the and the ones that they're using at the moment, yes, they are quite impactful. But things can change very quickly. For example, with the inclusion of the Zulfikar drone, um, sorry, um, missile, or even the Fatih uh, missile that was also previously used in Yemen by the Houthi movement, uh, of course, um, sent by the Iranians, um, and also trained by the Iranians, as as far as I've seen on open source. Um, and to be honest with you, when it comes to attribution and complicity, because I do see that's where the discussion's heading, um, or at least is being encouraged, it's a very interesting one. And, um, you know, when it comes to the rules of um, complicity, we'll see that perhaps on the international global order, there is a push for uh, war crimes against uh, Russia. But then other bystanders are not so interested to do that elsewhere. So I think Russia would play into that ideologically because, um, you know, on a personal level, I do feel that Ukraine is a very ideological uh, conflict as well as, um, you know, militarily. Thanks a lot, Khalil. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, some really great points there and, and glad you could join us. 
for this episode. But uh, Paul, love to jump to you because I think you had a really interesting uh, point and question, and, and and I wanted to hear your your thoughts uh, as well. Maybe if we could have some final comments from Sam before he leaves us, and then we can continue on from there. But over to you, Paul. Yeah, much appreciated, Piotr. Um, fascinating discussion. And I, I, I'm sorry to kind of butt in just as you're talking about international law. I wanted to bring it back, if I could, to a couple of sort of rather layman technical questions. I mean, John did actually sort of address one of my concerns, which is the use of this term loitering. Um, are we basically mistaken in using that term? These are, it seems, pretty much fire and forget weapons. There's no, there's no hanging around above the skies, you know, above Kiev before deciding to hit a target. That target's uh, locked in from the moment they're fired. Am I, am I correct about that? Um, I should say I've just c- come back from <laughs> listening to and uh, watching the drones in action, uh, both down in Zaporizhia, where we heard them, and also up in Kiev, where we saw what they do. They don't seem massively accurate. It seemed to me that the target of the particular strike that killed a lot of people, civilians, uh, was a, a large sort of city block size uh, area of uh, the Ukraine's energy company literally just across the road. So it seems as though that was probably the intended target. And I was also wondering, again, from a sort of technical point of view, there's been some talk about the extent to which the Russians may have modified uh, the Shahid, um, possibly with you know tweaking the guidance and stuff. I just wonder if you had any thoughts on that. And, and one other sort of technical area that You've, you've also briefly touched on, which is the best way to bring these things down. Uh, which systems would the Ukrainians be particularly keen to acquire? Thanks very much, Paul. Sam, love to go to you for your thoughts uh, and any final comments you have before you depart. Thanks so much. Really great conversation. Uh, I think the term loitering uh, in this case, in the case of Iranian drones, implies uh, the length of their um, flight time. If they fly for hundreds, hundreds of kilometers to target, especially um, as um, in the employ of the Houthi Iranian allies against, for, for example, Saudi targets, then they can stay in the air for quite a while. Ukrainian military also noticed that uh, occasionally these drones change directions, which uh, indicates probably pilot operation or some kind of adjustment. And yes, there's been recent news that uh, Russian Military may have started modifying the Shahed 136 and 131 with some of their domestic components, like swiping out uh, GPS for GLONASS and um, and uh, and other other parts. But we will await further verification once it becomes available. Um, they are shut out of the sky, and as Ukraine and the United States gain more knowledge and access into these loitering munitions or kamikaze drones, whatever we want to call them. Um, as this conflict continues, we will be able to develop better countermeasures, more effective countermeasures against them. I will end on this note. The use of these drones in this war, uh, in previous conflicts and possibly in future conflicts, is the ongoing evolution of sword versus shield. As defensive capabilities sharpen, defensive capabilities evolve. As defensive capabilities grow, offensive capabilities grow as well. So this kind of uh, race, I think, is expected to continue and it isn't going to stop anytime soon. It isn't probably going to be the first time when either Russia or Iran will use advanced aerial capabilities like drones um, in their wars. And as this technology proliferates, we sort of have to draw the right lessons from this conflict about using this technology and defending against it. 
Thank you very much, Sam, for your time and, and the great point about the self-perpetuating cycle um, or downward spiral, I suppose, in this case, uh, in some ways. But um, yeah, great to have you and we'll have to have you back uh, in the future, maybe to talk about drones more broadly or, or if there are some major developments on the battlefield. But with that, John, I don't know, uh, or Patrick, if either of you guys would like to um, add to what uh, Paul was asking. Um, John, I, I, you, you're probably a man who's got some things to say. I, Sam covered it. I mean, so on the second part on, on what can shoot them down, that, that's a, a very wide question. Um, they are a low-flying, slow-moving air at you know, a platform. So th- there's a wide range of things from literally uh, small arms to <clears throat> larger munitions that could shoot these down. The um, you know, most ideal would be something that has it, it is a AD an air defense weapon that combines a radar and a firing mechanism. You know, if it, if it's autonomous, that would be great. You know, something like an active protection system. But there's just such a wide variety of things for opening that open up when it's this low flying and that slow that I mean, it, there's both tactics and weapons that could be uh, effective. And that's why I think we, we're seeing the Ukrainians are at you know, the latest report, 86 percent of, of recent attacks of these things. You know, that I think personally, that's going to climb to 90 plus percent soon. And this terror tactic will be taken away from Russia. Thanks, uh, Major Spencer. Patrick, do you have anything to add? Or Khalil? I mean, um, since Sam has uh, left us, I mean, you are our resident drone expert as well. I'd, I'd love to have your thoughts at any time you, you would like to join. Um, Patrick, since you were joining us from the beginning, I'd, I'd love to hear anything you've got to add. Well, I think Samuel John covered it. I would say, yeah, again, going back to my initial comments, I think the reintroduction of gun-armed, radar-controlled platforms for uh, low-level air defense are going to come in very handy against drones. Um, I mean, John mentioned it earlier. I think you're going to see a reintroduction of an anti-air capability pushed very, very far forward compared to where it has been um, over the past several decades, certainly. And, you know, as John said, they're, they're low-flying, they're, low they're, they're fairly slow, and they're also fairly fragile especially when we're talking about um, a lot of the tactical or the, or the quadcopter drones. So these are not hard to shoot down, but you have to have some capability, you know, above your average rifleman or, or, or machine gunner to really deal with them effectively. So I, I think that probably is where modern armies are going to start looking to, again, push that air defense capability forward and to start providing themselves with dedicated platforms specifically addressing the drone threat. Uh, thanks, Patrick. Uh, Khalil, I saw you, um, you You want to come in on this, and then I'm going to circle back to Michael. Sure, thank you. Yeah, just a note on the um, some of my observations from the Ukraine um, Army's uh, Intelligence, I believe, unit. He was looking, at, he was looking into Iranians' um, Shahid uh, 131, I believe. And um, they actually found that, you know, it was actually upgraded so that um, it can't be jammed whilst it's in operation, uh, which is very interesting. And um, alongside that, there's been some uh, discrepancy or differences with regards to reporting on what the ranges of this drone. And uh, I actually believe that they have been upgraded to have different ranges 
to confuse uh, the Ukraine side and any other uh, organization supporting them from a from a military perspective. Um, and you know the most important point to make is that they've been upgraded to have global navigation satellite services or the GNSS, which is very important um, because, as I was saying before. Um, you could, you know, whenever you see a drone, like for instance, if it's a more premium drone like the Bayraktar drone or or the, even like MQ-9 is actually the best example, it's not just the drone that we should think about. It's also the ecosystem behind the drone. So it's the signal intelligence, um, which also, and also the networked warfare, which enables uh, multi-states to contribute to um, armed conflict through that drone. So it's not just one uh, state controlling the drone. Um, it's several different um, you know, military uh, parts which are supporting it. Um, but depending on the size of the drone, of course, it, it, it can um, um, affect how it's uh, playing out on the battlefield. And one word on the counter UAV uh, market is something which has um, increased over the last six or seven years in particular. Um, the Emirati government have actually specialised in this quite a lot because they had few attacks from the Houthis. So ironically, whilst we're talking about uh, Iranian drones in Ukraine, I think the Emiratis, UAE in particular, have a, a lot of experience in defending themselves with regards to the critical infrastructure like airports, for instance, um, against them. And if we have a, if you have a quick Google search, they've, they've actually are spending a lot of money through their um, com- through their domestic companies such as the Edge Group and um, even their defense uh, acquisition uh, lead, um, which is part of the you know the the leadership in UAE, uh, specifically on like um, surface to surface air missiles, sorry, to target drones, and it's a huge concern. So I think both of the markets are, you know, developing very quickly. And um, I think in the midterm, we will see a lot of the CUAV uh, coming into Ukraine. And I uh, suspect that it would also come from Israel because Israel have quite a lot of experience in the CUAV market. Um, uh, there have been conversations of the Americans uh, not being so interested in Israel getting involved for several geopolitical reasons, but that could also um, be uh, sorted out through another surrogate as it has been playing out. Thank you. Uh, thanks for, uh, thanks a lot, Khalil. Um, yeah, really, really great points. We'll have to have you back on as well for another conversation. Um, so great to hold these spaces um, and meet so many amazingly impressive people um, as well. I think what I'm going to do is probably wrap up for this episode of The Global Gambit. John, Patrick, do you have any final thoughts before we wrap up for this uh, episode? Anything you'd like to to, to, to take, uh, any, any main takeaways you'd like to share? Patrick, maybe if we go to you. Well, just on the general theme, what, in, any, in whatever capacity they end up, they end up, I think drones are going to be with us for a long time, militarily speaking, and I think they're going to play an increasing role in operations, both for modern conventional militaries and, and even militaries in the developing world. I think they're going to become a priority. Thanks a lot, Patrick. And Major Spencer, anything you'd like to leave us with? I agree with the, uh, Patrick 100%. It is a, an evolution of the character of warfare. And I wish that um, we would empower the use of drones to include, um, as an old infantryman, disposable assets rather than trying to go to the high end. And I think we should. there's lots that we can learn from the Ukrainians, but also from our enemy, the Russians, on what we will be required to bring to the battlefield.
Terrific. Thanks a lot, gentlemen. Um, and also thank you to Sam Bendet, colleague and friend of John's, uh, who joined us also for this episode, but also for the great um, uh, surprise and welcomed appearance of Khalil Dawan and Paul um, Adams uh, from the BBC uh, to make this discussion on the global gambit that much more fruitful. Coming up, we've got discussions uh, with some members of the Ukraine parliament likely to come on. Uh, we'll also be having, hopefully, Josh uh, from the Washington Post to uh, provide us some pro- political analysis for the upcoming midterms. Uh, and also Christopher Miller of the Financial Times, although he's gotten stuck out in different parts of the front lines by the field. But I've been your host, uh, Piotr. Thank you very much for tuning into this episode and see you in the next one. Take care. You were listening to The Global Gambit. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, subscribe and leave us a review. We would especially appreciate it if you left a comment on why you valued this episode and what you took away from it. Doing so helps us to be discovered by new listeners who would really enjoy our content. Want to support us further? Do so by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the global gambit, where you can get additional perks and even be featured in upcoming episodes. We actively invite you to follow and engage with us on social media at the global gambit. Got any feedback or suggestions, such as potential guests? Get in touch at theglobalgambit at gmail.com. Lastly, don't be shy. Download the Clubhouse app, listen in in real time, and even participate with questions or comments to the guests and host Piotr. But until next time, this is The Global Gambit.